Hi there, it's Dan Murphy. You're listening to the Don't Change Much podcast, brought to you by the Canadian Men's Health Foundation. Now imagine being poised to make the step to the top of your profession, only to be undone by the inner workings of your own mind. Corey Hirsch doesn't have to imagine. It happened. From all-rookie NHL goalie to making an attempt on his own life. Lucky for us, Corey is around to tell his tale. He made it through the darkness. Not that there haven't been significant roadblocks along the way. Corey has found a path to help himself, and now he's committed to helping others as well. Manage your stress, not the other way around. For simple ways to improve your mental health, check out the free MindFit Toolkit from the Canadian Men's Health Foundation. Complete a self-assessment, access virtual counseling, and learn more about how anxiety, stress, or depression might be impacting your health. Go to menshealthfoundation.ca and access the MindFit Toolkit to start improving your mental wellness today. So pleased to be joined by a friend in this space, Corey Hirsch. You remember him as a former National Hockey League goaltender, a former National Hockey League coach. He's a silver medalist in the Olympics and was a travel partner of mine for a handful of years doing the Canucks radio color. So Corey has been a advocate for men's mental health on the front lines basically for the last five years or so. And you may or may not know his story and we'll get into pieces of it as we move along here. But I think it's first important to ask Corey what it is you're doing right now to help the cause. So right now what I've been doing is I go out and I tell my story uh, to, you know, construction groups across BC actually are starting to go across the country. And I've gone up to pipelines up in Fort Jane John just see, to see those workers. Anywhere I can get to speak to any kind of middle-aged man group or people that have that male kind of stoic, tough guy thing built into their workforce. And it's the same for, for women. So we're hoping to make some positive impact into an industry where it's actually five times the national average of the suicide rate for construction. And ICBA Wellness has been the most incredible group I've worked with because they have the same goals I do, to put a dent in suicide, to be empathetic, compassionate, and just to help people. So that's that's the main thing that I've, I've really been doing. And, and it's been incredible. The people I've talked to, the transformations, the change, the, the change in attitude towards mental health. So that's, that's my main thing that I'm doing right now. You can draw some parallels probably to professional athletes when you're thinking about like the manly man, but isn't this a reflection of how far things have come that these types of people are open to listening to what could be significant problems? I don't know if they're open to it, but they're forced to. <laughs> you're going to listen to every word I say. No, yeah, it's, we're in a much better place. And we're in a place where people can talk about their stuff. When when I came when I first started to struggle, there you weren't telling anybody. And if you did, you were looked down upon, or you, you were seen as weak, or even you know just kind of shuffled off to the side. So yeah, we're we're in a much better place. However, we're there's still much so much more work to be done on the stigma on you know males not talking to each other, and we need to change that because as men we don't talk about our stuff to each other. We think, oh, what's my buddy going to think of me? What, you know, what's my buddy going to think of me? And so we don't do that when in actual fact, I have two or three guy buddies that 
all go talk to all the time. And it doesn't mean you need to go just talk to anybody, but I mean, there's people you trust, go talk to them. Guys are more open than you think they are to be willing to talk. Can you give us any specific, specific examples without names, obviously, if after these talks of men or women have come up to you and shared a story? Well, I mean, I've spoke, God, I bet you I've spoke to over 20,000, 25,000 uh, construction workers and people. And at the end, there's always a line of 10 to 12 people that just want to come and share their stuff. And that's another part of it is, is that they just want me to listen. They don't want me to solve their stuff. They just want to feel that they're not alone. So at the end of these talks, a lot of times, I just did one in uh, for Pitt Metals Plumbing in Whistler, and there's probably 20 people at the end lined up, and there's probably about 500 people at this event. But at the end, it's not about them going, well, where do I go, or what do I do, or what do I do? They just want to talk, and they just want to feel not alone. And that's, for the average person such as us, Smurf, that's all we need to do. We just need to listen. I'm not qualified to help anybody or give diagnosis or, or medical advice, or but I can lead them in the right direction and I can listen, right? That's that's all we need to do. You don't need to do anything special. You just, everybody just wants to feel heard and not alone. I think it was 2017, you shared publicly for the first time your history with mental illness. You know, I think it's important for people that don't know your story, just to, you know, if you can, it's not an easy one to sum up, but just how it came about that you learned of it and how dark it was and how you finally decided to share it. Yeah. So um, I was 21 years old after the Olympics, got called up with the New York Rangers for their run on the Stanley Cup. And when I describe it as, so I have obsessive compulsive disorder. So I describe it as something in my brain just kind of broke, wires disconnected, a little different than depression, anxiety, which kind of build up over time. OCD was just like, I could tell you where I was when it happened, time, place, who I was with. And most of my friends with OCD can tell you the same thing. But, you know, things with OCD, you're kind of a prisoner in your own brain. And I won't get, we don't have time here to get into all of it, but, you know, struggle with panic attacks, you know, anxiety, and then the depression, it was a big cycle. But after the Rangers won the Stanley Cup, I made an attempt in my own life because, like I said, you're a prisoner in your own brain. And I didn't think there was any help or hope. So, you know, obviously, thankfully, I'm still here. But I remember when I went through that, this is 1994. And when I went through that, I was looking for any sort of help or hope or anything. And back then, of course, we didn't have Google machine. We just, we had to go to bookstores. I found nothing, Murph. I found nothing on any of this stuff. And I knew it was a mental health issue, but it was like, it was so discouraging. And I remember after that attempt, uh, as awful as everything was moving forward, I said, if I ever get out of this, and I remember laying in my bed, and I said to myself, and God, or whatever the universe you believe in, I said, I would make sure that I do something about this so that other people don't have to feel the way that I do, that they see that there's some help and hope out there. Because that's what happens when someone's at the end of their, you know, because they've lost all hope. Anyways, from there, I traded to Vancouver, all that. These are just Cole's notes. You know, I struggled. I learned to function with OCD. Um, so 1996, 97-ish, I still hadn't gotten help, though, because I was hiding, because it was in the NHL. I mean, you're playing with a bunch of, you're playing men. You're supposed to be the toughest of the tough, and heaven forbid, you know, you showed any weakness as a goalie, they'd, they'd pipe you, right? Because the coach has a job on the line, they want to win a Stanley Cup, and you're perceived as weak. You know, so eventually, if you don't get something fixed, it's like a broken leg. Your brain's no different than, it's still a physical piece of your body. If you don't get it fixed, you can't just walk around in life three years with a broken leg and go, oh. Nope, I'm good over here. And guys are like, dude, you got a broken leg. You're like, no, I'm good. I'm good. And just keep going on. Eventually, you know, things are going to go south. So same thing. Second year with Vancouver, I guess the wheels fell off and 
but I finally reached out for help. But I mean, before that, you know, I, I lost 30 pounds. I was trying to play in the National Hockey League, late for practices, late for games. My teammates, I mean, really, they started to despise me because I looked like a bad teammate because I was late for those things. This is so much sleeping, not, you know, not sleeping, just so many of the things that you see when somebody's struggling. So many of the signs were there. But, you know, nobody, nobody knew. And I finally reached out to a trainer, Mike Bernstein. He got me some help. But by then, you know, I had waited too long, three years. And back then, there was a stigma. So kind of after that, I got buried and, sh and shuffled around. But I did get better. But, you know, it was probably, the, I remember sitting on the bus because I, I asked uh, Mike Bernstein in the morning to help me. And I remember getting on the bus after morning skate and all my teammates knew, like, there was something was up. Because I, I couldn't play that night because... I wasn't doing well. Kirk McLean was hurt and they started Mike Fountain instead because I, I finally talked about my stuff and my teammates just didn't really know. So I remember sitting on the bus, embarrassed, ashamed. And these are the Coles notes of the story, by the way. And I remember a tear rolling down my face as I'm looking out the bus window because my teammates are looking by me. They, they're not even looking at me, right? And I remember thinking to myself that I threw my NHL career away. And Murph, I did, right? But it was also the same day I saved my own life. Because if I didn't reach out to get help, it would have not ended well. And when I did reach to, out to get help, I went back to Vancouver. A psychologist came to see me, diagnosed me with obsessive compulsive disorder. And uh, from there, it was 10 years after that before I found the proper help. But it was 20 years until the story came out, right? And that was in 2017. So trying to keep this a little bit short for you guys, but it's, it's a lot more convoluted than that. And it's not quite as easy as everybody thinks, but 20 years from diagnosis to being able to finally feel free to tell my story. Murph, when I did, the chains fell off. Right. And that story was almost part of it was an apology to my teammates for being the way I was. I wasn't doing it to be a dick. I wasn't doing it to be a bad teammate. I was struggling like badly and was just trying to hang on every day. So there was a lot of things about that article that made sense. And I go back to that day I was laying in my bed that I promised I would do something and I would try to help other people in sharing my story. When you came with your story in 2017, any old teammates reach out to you? A lot of them. Yeah, most of them. And they just were like, a lot of them were like, they felt bad about themselves for not recognizing and not helping. But I didn't tell anybody, Murph. Like, it's not, it's not on them. I didn't tell any of my teammates. And they all kind of blamed themselves. It's not on them. It was on me to, to tell people and to, and to let them know. But back then, man, you didn't tell anybody, right? So I'm thankful today we're in a better place. And there's been people come before me, Clint Malarchuk, Sheldon Kennedy, you know, Theo Fleury, Clara Hughes, Michael Landsberg that told their stuff that made it safe for me to tell my stuff. The difference between my stuff and theirs is, is that I just caught the right time. I caught the right wave where people were ready to listen, right? But it was them that paved that way, and I'm so thankful to them because they softened the blow for me to be able to tell my story. So I'm guessing being an advocate of mental health is very rewarding, but it probably also carries a bit of a burden. How has it impacted your life? Telling my story and then getting an email or something or a text or talking to somebody after a speech, there's no win I've ever got or any game I've ever played in the National Hockey League or in the Olympics or that compares to any of that. Not even remotely close. It's the greatest feeling. It's the greatest feeling in the world. What I have to be careful of now is, is that when people talk to me about their pain, it's very easily to take that on. 
And because there's some stories, I mean, there's heartbreaking stories. If you take that on yourself, you can get sick yourself. So, but I, all I do is I listen with no judgment. I don't try to solve their problems. I can be empathetic. I can be ca- compassionate. And really, ultimately, end of the day, Murph, it's all about, you know, being non-judgmental. People will come talk to you. But for me, like I say, there's been no greater gift than coming out with my story and someone saying, you know what, you helped me. And the reason that I have that opportunity, Murph, and we all have that opportunity, but being a former professional athlete, I have a platform. I'm no, no different than anybody else, right? I just have a platform that I can use that I can reach a lot of people. But I don't care if you talk to 10 or 10,000 people or how big your platform is, you can make a difference in one person's life. So if your platform's five buddies sitting around a table and you tell yourself and you make a difference in somebody's life, that's what I mean, I don't care. I don't care. You can change and help anybody just by being open. And when I share my story, it's amazing. That's when people will share back. But sometimes you have to show that vulnerability in order to get people to share back. I think it's important for us to tell the listeners too that you said there was really no resources for you when you first were in it, in the dark place. There is now. Oh, tons. Yeah. You know, there is now a starting place for anyone who, you know, feels like they're ready to talk, ready to explore what they might be feeling to kind of get some initial answers perhaps. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of stuff out there. Uh, you know, you guys have your mind fit, which is incredible, which I'm going to try to get more involved in and, and take a look more at that probably after the show. And there's, you know, there's Foundry, there's Kids Help Phone, there's, you know, there's lots of other different stuff. CAMH has programs. Canadian Mental Health Association has programs. Like, you can find all that. You just have to go and look for it. You know, the issue today is is that we need to kind of streamline it so it's easier for people to find. But we're getting there. But the first step is obviously reaching out and getting the help you need. Because until you do that, I mean, there's really you know, nothing out there for you, but you have to be able to be willing to go get the help. And the thing that I always say, Murph, is, is that it gets better, mm-hmm. right? Like I'm living proof of that. Yeah. Do you think the stigma is lifting? You think that people are not as concerned about the barriers of trying to make that first step to get help? Depends on what generation you talk to. Mm-hmm. You know, like my parents' generation, there's still a big stigma. My, our generation, mine, I'm 50, is better. My kids' generation is incredible. The stigma is almost stigma-free for them, which is great. But there's that gap between, you know, 30 and 60, which it's, it's kind of in the gray area. And we need to change that. We need to make that area stigma-free because our suicide crisis for middle-aged men is off the charts. Certainly many layers and, you know, some people are just looking to get a little inf- information. They feel maybe something's not right. But then you have other people at the other end of the spectrum that uh, you've talked about at a real crisis. I don't, I mean, not a doctor, but to try to help identify when people might be in a really tough spot and how to, yeah. how to help them. You can't force anybody to get help, but if you let somebody know that you're a safe, non-judgmental person to talk to, well, eventually, you know, it's like that open door policy. Eventually you hope that they come to you and, or, you know, might be two weeks, might be a month, might be six months. But if they know that you're that non-judgmental safe person, you know, they'll come talk to you and you don't have to, it's not like you say once and you give up, you know, maybe a couple of weeks later you go, Hey, remember that coffee I asked for you want to go this week? That's yeah. it. That's it. And if you, like I said, non-judgmental, and usually I'll share my vulnerability and that gives an opportunity for somebody to talk to me. But here's the thing. You can't force somebody to get help. It's got to be up to them, but you can offer encouragement advice in the sense of, you know, there's help out there and it's available. 
and make them feel less alone. Well, let's bring someone else into this conversation with with Corey Hirsch, Ben Brown, who is the director, interim director of comms and marketing for the Canadian Men's Health Foundation. He is uh, firmly behind this podcast, makes it work. But he was with myself and Corey and a couple of others in Florida a handful of years back when Corey got the news that someone very close to him had taken her life. And quite frankly, obviously Corey was in a crisis and he was surrounded by people that I'm not sure knew how to deal with it. And Ben, I'll let you take it from here. Thank you, Murph. Yeah, that was a really challenging time. And I think it was, it was hard for a lot of reasons, but most of all, seeing someone that you care about, someone you consider a good friend, uh, struggling and really needing, needing help. And the group that we were with, not knowing exactly what to do to, to help provide that help. So this is actually one of the reasons why we wanted to talk to you today, Corey, just uh, recalling those moments in time and, and maybe being able to help others in the process just by sharing this story. But if I were to walk through how I experienced, you know, encountering you, we, we were out for dinner. You left early. I think you got the news. And we noticed that you'd, something, something looked wrong and that you don't normally leave a meal early when, when you're with us. And we also left and, and we followed you back to the hotel and we found you, you know, quite upset. And, and you shared quite quickly what had happened. And I think for the group that was there, you know, our hearts dropped and, and we just, we felt horrible for you and we wanted to do what we could to help, but equally we didn't know. I don't think I shared it with you at the time, but I did share it with, you know, with, with the group that I was with and maybe you weren't there at the time too, Murph, but you joined soon after. But unfortunately I've had a, you know, I've had a similar experience in my life. And so I, I had the chance to review how you might be feeling based on how, what I went through and, and my own experience. And, and I drew from that, you know, and, and tried to use that opportunity to, to in turn help you. And knowing that we weren't going to change how you felt and what you, were, what you were going through, you know, me personally, I think my decision was just to be a rational actor with you, someone who could help you and support you and, and help, help get you to make, make the right decisions in a time of need. And, and that was powerful. I was able to share that with, with the group that we needed to, to be with you and support you, even if we didn't know what to say and what to do. And, and Murph, you referenced that, not knowing how to, how to give support. Hershey, you know, what do you remember from that, that night as far as the support you, you got? And, and none of us are professionals and, and we were going through it with you for the first time. But, you know, what would you tell somebody about what's the most important thing to do uh, to help in, in, in a real time of need? You guys did exactly the perfect thing to do. Okay. So I remember you found me in the parking lot, like it, and you made it sound nicer than it is to for, for radio, but it was, it was, it was pretty frantic. Like I remember dropping my knees in tears, but you guys did exactly what a person should do is you didn't leave me alone. Right. Don't leave that person alone. Not even for a second. And you guys came to my, my hotel room. And even though you, you sat there, I mean, I got on the phone with you, like I wasn't really there. I was in and out and, you know, and, and Brownie, you just mentioned, reminded me of something that I, I sort of remember. I sort of don't, but you had mentioned, you know, hey, like, we're going to get you through this. You know, don't do anything yourself. And, and you know why that was the right thing to say is because that's kind of something that will go through your mind is, is that I, as bizarre as it is, but nobody really talks about this. But when somebody passes or in any form or any fashion, the only way you can see them is by doing something stupid, right? It's not the answer. 
but in the same sense, it does go through your mind. And I was happy that you said that because not that I was going to do anything like that or that, but we have to understand that where people's minds are at in that situation, it's not in a great place, right? I mean, it's, it's all over the map. And that's the point too of staying with somebody, not leaving them alone, offering support, encouragement. And you know what else you guys did was, is that a lot of you guys didn't say anything. A lot of times you just gave me a hug. Like I remember you giving me a hug and it was like, it's, there's nothing you can say to somebody in that moment that's going to make things change or feel better or make you feel better. It's just not going to happen. So what you got to do is you just got to sit there. You got to listen. You got to just do that. And then the next morning it was Murph that took me back to Phoenix, right? Again, didn't leave me alone. And Murph, you and I have talked about this. You're like, you felt bad because you didn't, didn't know what to do and you didn't know if you helped me. And, and I was like, Murph, you did the best thing you could have done, which was just get me from point A to point B and just not leave me alone. Right. So that's the other, that's, that's that side of it as a friend. But as far as that day goes, you guys handled it perfectly in the terms that you didn't leave me alone. And so in learning from this, that's exactly what you need to do. Don't leave that person alone, surround them with love and support and, there's nothing you're going to say or do to make it better, but just being there is the greatest gift you can give that person. I mean, I think that's like as Ben mentioned when we were on the flight, we have a six hour flight, basically or five and a half hour flight. And I didn't know how to start a conversation. I think ultimately what I said was, I don't know what to do here, Corey. If you want to talk about something, yeah. if you don't want to talk about something, I'm here to talk if you want to, because I didn't, I wasn't going to start a conversation to try to make you feel better. I just wanted to make sure I was a sounding board. If you wanted someone to talk to. Yeah. Well, and that's, at that point, like if you would have tried to, to say things that make me feel better, I probably would have told you to shut the hell up. <laughs> right? yeah. Like, yeah. So you handled it perfectly by really by not saying anything, by just giving me a hug when I needed it or, hey, here for you, buddy, or, you know, here's a coffee or whatever. What do you need? That was perfect because if you get into the, hey, look how great your life is. You know, you got three kids. It's going to get better, blah, blah, blah. At that point in time, you don't want to hear <laughs> right? Yeah. So you handled it perfectly by non-judgmental. You listened you didn't try to offer solutions because there weren't any, but then that's, and the same thing for you is, is that you guys handled that perfectly really for not knowing what to do. I'm curious what helped you heal Corey time. So after that happened, and, and I'll be honest, I've talked about this. I don't even know if you guys knew Murph, but I drank hard for a year, like hard. I was out, you know, you guys, we on the road and I'd go home with you guys about 10 after dinner and all that drinking or, or in a few drinks or whatever, maybe nothing normal. You guys would go in your room and I would look out my room and I'd look around. Okay. Everyone's in the room, right back out to the bar. Right. And I don't know if you guys knew, but point being is I was self-medicating. So I drank, I drank really hard for, for a full year. And then, uh, there's one night I was downtown Toronto and we were on the road and it was about 3 a.m. bombed walking around and, uh, dangerous, right? Like, like dangerous. Anybody could have mugged me, robbed me, whatever. And I woke up the next morning, my clothes on my bed, starfished. And I was like, I got three kids. Like this is enough. Right. And there's a lot more that happened before that, but it was when I stopped drinking and Brian, this is a great question because that was when I stopped drinking is when I healed because I tried to go around it by drinking and you know, that's just the way it was. But when I stopped and I had to go through the middle and I had to go through it, that's when I finally healed. That's really how I dealt with it. And then time is really the other thing. So no, alcohol and drugs aren't the answer because you're just avoiding healing, really. And the thing is, you knew that even as oh, you're yeah. doing it, right? You were just 
pushing the conversation down the road for Kick all the can the down the road. road. Yeah. Well, and, and, and thankfully, and I'll be honest about this too, is this, I don't tell a lot of people, but I, I called a friend that, uh, I called Daryl Sador, right. And told him, he said, I need some help. Cause Sid's had his own issues. Played junior with Sid Camels. He played a couple Stanley cups and another friend I talked to and, and they got Dr. Shaw involved from the NHL. And this is where people don't know the NHL. They're like, well, why don't they help these guys? Whatever the NHL and the NHL alumni helps so many guys that you would never even know about. Right. Uh, they, and, and talk them out of suicide and into rehab a lot. The point is, is that I get on the phone and I think I'm just talking to Daryl and Dr. Shaw. There's like seven people on the phone. I'm like, this is an intervention, <laughs> right? Like it was like, you know, I watched them on TV and I'm like, I, I'm never going to need that. You know, that's there. And it, that scared me. That, that scared me enough. Like they were going to put me into rehab and it scared me enough that I was just like, I just quit. And, but that's people that cared about me. Right. And th- And that was the best thing that, that could have happened really because like, like I just said, man, it, Murph, you kick the can down the road, hoping you just avoid it. But man, the only way to heal is you got to go right through it and it sucks, but that's how I got back. That's how I got better. Corey, you've spoken openly about speaking to people to get help on numerous occasions. And I think that there are a lot of people out there that they like the idea of the sound of it. Let's go talk to someone. It's going to be great. But when you're just thinking about it, like, I don't really want to go through with that. I don't really want to have to go sit down and talk to someone. What actually happens when you finally make that decision to go meet with someone that's certified to help you? That's a great question because we're all, but a part of the reason people don't get go is because they're always terrified to find out that this person's going to tell them, yeah, you are crazy actually. And we do need to commit you. <laughs> it's not going to happen. That doesn't happen. That happened in the fifties, but not, not today. First step is to talk to your doctor. First step is probably talk to your family doctor and usually they can give you a referral from there or if you need medication or whatever, they can help you with that. Uh, Then when you go to see somebody, it's like you open a door to an office and you go sit in a chair and you hang out with a guy and you just talk to your stuff, right? And he's not going to tell anybody because he's sworn to secrecy and, or not secrecy, but confidentiality and, you know, they'll lose their license. So they're not talking about, you know, and they're trying to help you. And here's the thing. I guarantee you that your doctor and your therapist has heard everything way crazier things than you can ever tell that person. Right. So there's no need to be afraid. Like this is what they do. This is, this is their job and they're there to help you. And there is help available, but we're always all afraid to go. It's like sitting with your buddy, you know, you're having a coffee. I'll sit, I'll have a coffee. I'll be drinking coffee. I'll be just hanging out. We'll just be talking. It's not, you're not laying in a chair or on a couch and you know, and it's, it's not like that, but it is also a relationship. Therapy is different in the sense that, you know, you go to your GP, you tell them it's more of a, a kind of a mechanical type relationship with your doctor that you tell them, but with a, with a therapist or a psychologist or a psychiatrist, it's more of a personal thing. So if you don't like that person or you're just not that you don't like them, but you're not clicking in that sense where they're easy to talk to, go find another one. And, if, and that's okay because not everybody's easy to talk to everybody. Not everybody connects in that way. I saw six or seven, right? So some people go to one and they go, well, that didn't work. And then they don't go again. No, I went to like six or seven, right? I've had different over the years. Some I've loved, some I'm like, yeah, not for me, right? There's a personal relationship. Don't give up. But yeah, it's not what you think. It's me having a coffee. There's candies on the table. I'm firing candies back while I'm talking, right? It's just, that's, that's really all it is. Yeah. It's, and it's so simple. We asked this question of all the, the guests on the Don't Change Much podcast. What do those words mean to you as... 
someone who's suffered from mental health problems and someone who's now an advocate helping. I love that because I'm sure it means a lot different things to a lot of other people. But don't change much when I was when I sat and I thought about it. to me it was important because when I played back in, in, in the NHL and in the minors and all that, part of the reason that there was a stigma on uh, everything was is because people thought that they would go to a psychologist or a psychiatrist and they would come out a completely different person. Well, what's that going to do to my game, right? Well, is that going to make me a better or worse player? It's going to, you know, it's like that. It's like some mind voodoo they used to think it was. When you get mental health therapy, you're, you're not going to change much in the sense of your personality. You are going to be who you are, but you're going to be a better person. You're going to be a better student. You're going to be a better athlete. You're going to be better at everything. So you don't need to change much by going to therapy or the only thing you're going to change is you're going to become better. And here's another thing too that I always say, Murph, is, is that when you do go get help and there used to be a stigma that you were weak and all this stuff, I was a better goalie after I went to get help than I was before because I couldn't train properly, I couldn't eat properly, I couldn't didn't sleep properly, and I still played in the NHL. But because of the stigma after I got help, you know, I didn't really get a chance. But I was a better goalie after I got help. And that's what people need to know. You're going to be better for everybody around you, your friends, your family, your kids. You're going to be able to be a better dad, a better husband, better you know worker. But everybody's afraid of the unknown. What am I going to be after I, I go through help, if I get help? You know, uh, you're going to be better. <laughs> you're going to be better at everything, and you're going to have a better life. Merely because you understand more what's happening. Yeah, and, and you're healthy. You're not healthy. Like It's like needing shoulder surgery. You're an athlete. You need shoulder surgery, but you just don't go get it because you're scared of whatever. Well, after you get the surgery done, guess what? You're probably going to be a better player. I want to finish on this. A lighter note, perhaps. I have a book coming out. It's called The Save of My Life, and it's all my stuff. And basically, like I said, it's try to help people. I have a podcast called Blindsided with Players Tribune. And then uh, now I've become a fan of this podcast. So download this one too as well. <laughs> Put it on your list, your Christmas list. Yeah. So lots going on. Well, thanks for being so open and honest as usual and sharing your story because think every time you share it, you're reaching at least one person and probably uh, many more. The gratitude I have for both of you is off the charts and uh, thank you. Well, after talking to Corey, we felt it important to reach out to an expert in these matters because as Corey mentioned, he is not a professional. So to help further address the experience Corey shared about losing a loved one, we reached out to Dr. Melanie Badali. Dr. Badali is a registered psychologist certified in cognitive behavior therapy. Uh, thanks, Dr. Badal, for joining us today. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. I know you've listened to Corey's story and talking about the loss of his girlfriend in that moment of crisis, how we felt perhaps ill-equipped to help. We didn't know uh, what direction to take. From a professional perspective, what are the steps friends and loved ones should take in a situation like this? I think that's a great question. And before I answer it, I just wanted to say that supporting someone who has lost a loved one to suicide is extremely challenging. And there's no uh, right or wrong way, one single right or wrong way to do so. And I think I just, you know, I, I want to make that point that Corey brought up some things that really made a difference for him um, in that the people around him showed up and supported him and sometimes didn't even say anything at all, but that that was helpful 
Um, so I just wanted to, you know, kind of bring up that point that there's also, there's a difference between feeling ill-equipped and feeling like you're not doing enough and not actually being helpful and supportive to the person. I think in situations like this, you know, even if you have all the skills, all the tools in the world, when you see someone really suffering, it never feels like enough. <laughs> no matter what you do, no matter, you know, how many casseroles you bring or hugs you give or, you know, words of wisdom you share or silent presence, which is, you know, sometimes equally difficult and equally helpful. It kind of never feels enough. So I just, I just wanted to, before I started, just make sure that I said that piece. So in terms of support that uh, bereaved people need, they need compassion, empathy, acknowledgement of what has happened and validation of how they're feeling. You know, it's good to offer practical and emotional support during this time. Again, check in with yourself and see, you know, what has helped for you in the past. What would I want someone to say to me in this moment? Or what would I want someone not to say to me in this moment? You know, and and I think, again, in times like this, we're all sort of muddling through and that's okay, right? And that's why, you know, grief rituals exist in terms of helping people through these tough times. And that's also, you know, now with the internet, we can also take that breath, step aside and Google, how do I support a friend uh, who's lost a loved one to suicide and things like that and, and call up some some information so that we can uh, get ideas. But I think, you know, uh, a key piece is really is showing up. It, even if you feel awkward, even if you don't know what to say or you're worried that you'll say the wrong thing, um, just show up and be there. And also get your own supports in place. So supporting someone who's suffering is is hard. Uh, so you know, kind of rally, rally the the support system and the group, and get support for the person who's suffering. And also uh, get back up for yourself because it's it's not easy. So obviously, different people need different things in times like this. So how do you navigate that? How do you try to figure out what exactly they might need most? Especially if you're there right from the get go and you don't have time to to Google, you're, you're present from the very start. Yeah. It, it, you're a it, great question. Cause if you're with someone who's in the, in the throes, you're not going to stop and look at your phone. You know, my first instinct always is to say, be sensitive, but direct and say, what do you need right now? But in the cases of traumatic losses and, and losses, um, due to suicide, people don't know what they need. It's so, I mean, you're, you're just people are in, in really the depths in those moments. So I think our standbys take a breath, just sit next to someone. You know, one of the things that trained psychotherapists learn is, you know, kind of when to try and open people up and when to to shut them down and when to let them be. And I think that's one thing that I notice some people really struggle with that the instinct is to try and stop other people's suffering, which of course is a completely natural instinct and at some points, you know, is appropriate to say, okay, you know, time to pull it together. But in those moments when things are very fresh, you know, just let the person cry or, you know, some, sometimes, uh, you know, people need to talk or not talk and just kind of share that uncomfortable moment with them as, as hard as, as that is to do. And obviously, you know, myself and Ben and the others knew that Corey has had his own mental health challenges in the past. So do you approach um, someone like Corey differently in a time like this? 
I think you approach them in the same way with some added concerns, perhaps just about safety and just, you know, making sure whatever you would normally do, you might just have to, depending on what the person has struggled with, uh, kind of keep an eye on those extra things. So, you know, if someone has a history of alcohol and, and uh, drug use problems, for example, we know it's, it's, it's a vulnerable time uh, to lapse back into those. And we also know, say, for example, alcohol is a depressant. So how it acts on the brain, even though in the short term, it, it you know, a lot of people use it to self-medicate or soothe, it, it actually tends to increase impulsivity and make mood even worse. So, you know, I really do think that anybody who's, you know, lost a loved one in this very, very difficult way you know, benefits from having a safe environment and having a lot of support. And again, maybe it's just, you know, kind of going that one step further in terms of, you know, do you need me to reach out and find someone for extra support? Do you need uh, someone to, to just be with you? And again, this is where you might, um, you know, just keep an extra eye out for safety, right? I mean, we know that the vast majority of people who think about suicide do not die by suicide. The vast majority of people who have even serious mental illness do not die by suicide. So, you know, again, human first, people first, friend first, and then a little extra hustle. Don't leave that person alone if you can. I get help, whether that's family and friends or a trained professional, and you might need the trained professional uh, for some people. And you know, one of the things that I will, you know, kind of bring up too is that there are suicide and crisis hotlines available. So even if a person isn't, you know, kind of up to talking to you, the friend or a family member, maybe they would be able to reach out and and talk on one of these hotlines and suicide.ca is one um, resource and we can talk about some numbers uh, that, that people could call. But I think that's, you know, one of the other steps um, available to people. And in, in, in some cases, it, you know, it might have to be a a trip to the ER or a call to 911 if somebody really, you know, uh, depending on how they're feeling is um is at risk in in that moment and that and that's okay. It, you know, the help is there. Would it be offside in a moment like that to ask like Corey for his doctor's number? Would you like me to call your doctor or is there someone you speak to uh that's a professional? I don't think it would be offside. I mean, you know, it's, you can ask and a person can say no. The The rule of thumb for me is, is to ask, even if I'm not sure, um, you know, I'd rather make the mistake I can fix later. Um, if someone gets upset that I've asked, uh, then we can work on that and work through that together. But, you know, for me, I would err on the side of asking, but I think, again, it's important to stress there's no right or wrong thing. And and you could say the exact same thing to one person, it would be helpful. And another person, it would be hard. And even two different people could say the same thing. And because of prior relationships, one person, you know, might be really comforting to, to hear those words from another person, it might be annoying. So again, you know, I think the the idea here is you, you show up and, and you do your best to the ability that you have. I like what you said. I think you said sympathetic, but direct or empathetic, but direct mm-hmm. in, in the way you speak um, to someone in, in a moment of crisis. Is there language you should avoid? I would recommend avoiding judgy type of language. 
And, you know, it's one of those things that in the moment you might have to be directive, right? Again, in terms of, nope, you know, come on, you have to have some water or come on, we got to get off, off, you know, got to catch that flight to get back home. And, and so again, there's, there's this dance of you want, you know, to give the person the time to grieve and, you know, kind of validate their feelings and to really listen and to be heard. But sometimes in these moments, there are actual things that need to be done. So it's one of those things that's tough. So you want to try and take any sort of judgment out of there. Also, one of the things that Corey brought up that um, I think stuck with me is that sometimes there's talk around, uh, you know, suicide of being somehow related to a person's character and, you know, calling people selfish or, you know, something like that, even though you maybe are trying to make your your friend feel better. You don't want to put down, uh, you know, the the lost loved one uh, to make that person feel better. So, so try to refrain from saying anything, you know, certainly negative about that person that, or anything that kind of reduces that person to, you know, one note. It's a very, very complex topic. And, you know, there's uh, a lot of struggle around, you know, mental health, mental illness in particular, what people could do, what we could do differently. And it's, it's, it's always tough because some people show warning signs and some people don't. And, you know, even as professionals, we struggle to keep people safe. And it's, it's really hard because we want to balance keeping people safe and doing everything we can to prevent suicide and to offer effective treatments such as medication and psychotherapy for people. Uh, at the same time, we don't want to make that that loved one who's lost someone feel that it's in any way their fault or they could have, should have done more because they're already, that's already going through their head. So again, in terms of uh, what you say there, I always would suggest show up and be present rather than avoiding because you don't know the right thing to say. But if you can try and avoid any language that's um, kind of too judgy or reductive. And you also, you know, I think people mean well when they're saying things. They're not I always think of stuff like, uh, you know, oh, they're in a better place, you know, something they probably don't want to hear. And you don't mean to say it in that way, but it comes out. Of course. That yes, kind of thing. Uh, absolutely. And those kind of platitudes and, and, and cliches, they're, they're meant to comfort somebody. And, you know, in those moments, we don't know what to say. So we rely on them. Yeah. In general, people don't really like to hear those because it's, it's just, too painful and and it just really isn't that simple at the same time i think people need to cut themselves some slack if one of those pops out of their mouth because what do you say there really aren't words to adequately you know kind of provide comfort to somebody who is who is suffering in this way and and just say i'm i'm here for you so what about some resources some numbers for people so if things are really bad uh, and, you know, the loss of a loved one triggers some suicidal thoughts or, you know, or if they have means or if they have any intent, call 911 immediately. 911 isn't just for other types of health emergencies. It includes mental health emergencies or go to your nearest emergency room. Mental health matters and it, it is, uh, you know, it is health. In terms of something a little bit less than that, you can reach out to Talk Suicide Canada, 1-833-456-4566. That's available 24-7. Their website is talksuicide.ca. 
Wellness Together Canada also has resources. And so this can connect you, um, you know, if you're like, okay, no, no, I, I'm suffering, but I'm not thinking about harming myself in any way, but I really could use some extra support. Um, in addition to immediate crisis support, you can also speak to a trained responder by texting 741741 for adults or 686868 for youth. And that's wellness together dot ca and so to the extent that you can reach out yourself or reach out on behalf of uh, somebody you care about do so dr badali thank you so much for your time and your expertise on these subjects that are just so important and impactful in people's lives thanks thanks for listening and a big thanks to everyone who already follows if you haven't yet click the follow button on your podcast app so you don't miss upcoming episodes and special guests Join us every month for new episodes. And if you're new to the show, be sure to check out previous episodes with guests, including John Herdman, Kelly Rudy, Trevor Linden, and more. For more helpful tips on improving your mental and physical health, visit menshealthfoundation.ca and don'tchangemuch.ca.